0: You all remember we have section tomorrow, and everyone knows where they're going? Okay, yay. Oh, and do I have a copy? Can I have a copy? Thank you. And we'll talk a little bit tomorrow about papers. Um, is it cruel and vicious that you have a paper due right after vacation? Uh, yeah, okay, good. I wanted to give you a sense of what Satan was going through. Um, yeah. We I mean, we talk about that real quickly, though? What day exactly is it due, and, like, how many pages? Um, so it's on the syllabus. It's... Awesome. <laughs> um, officially, so I'm, I'm thinking of just making it due two days later. But the idea was that you shouldn't um, come back to school and think, yeah, I'll just really want to get back to school. So you should work on it over break. Um, and that's why... So here's what I'm going to do. It's a, It's still officially due the day after break, which is the 22nd, I think, right? 13th, twenty, yeah, the 22nd. Um, so it's officially due that day, but you can have, um, without any question and without needing to indicate anything or anything of that sort, you can have an automatic two-day extension. Um, so what that means, then, is it is officially due that day, and that will get, be a way for you to focus on the idea that you should be using the time over vacation and not blow it off until um, you get back to school. Um, but you, if you really um, want the extra two days, it's fine. You can have them. Um, so we will talk a little bit about the papers in section, and we'll have paper topics for you before vacation. Um, and uh, if you have other topics you want to do, on your last paper you'll be deciding on your own topics, but if you have other topics you might want to do for the first paper, that's fine as well. Just let us know. Um, And I think it's uh, 4 to 6, is that what I said, or 5 to 7? 5 to 7 for the first two, and then 6 to 8 for the last one? Yeah, okay. So 5 to 7 for the first two papers, uh, 6 to 8 for the last one. Um, anyhow, we can talk more about this tomorrow. Okay, so what we were talking about on Monday, um, among the things we were talking about, um, was the question that the fallen angels, when they're talking philosophy in hell, bring up, um, in which they reason high, this is, uh, we looked at this on Monday, but this is book two, um, Line five fifty five in discourse more sweet for eloquence the soul, song charms the sense. Others apart sat on a hill, retired in thoughts more elevate, and reasoned high of providence, foreknowledge, will and fate, fixed fate, free will, foreknowledge absolute, and found no end in wandering mazes, lost. So what their arguing about what they're talking about is the question, is there free will? Can there be free will? Is free will something possible if God knows what you're going to do? If God, who, as we know from the beginning of Book 3, is also on a prospect high, the fallen angels... Um, who are arguing philosophy or sitting high on a hill and talking about these issues, God also, from his prospect high, above all height, foreseeing the future, speaks to his son about what will happen. And so the question is, if God knows what will happen, how is will free? If you know what will happen, how can the will be free? Yeah? Isn't there a part in the Bible where, like, I think Satan takes Jesus up on top of the hill. Yes. Is this what this is like hearing? Yes, and in fact, although um, you'll be... uh, One day you will read Paradise Regained and then you will have a kind of um, retroactive gratitude that we're not doing it in this class. Um, Milton wrote a sequel to Paradise Lost called Paradise Regained. It takes a long time to like it. Um, but in Paradise Regained, the story in Paradise Regained is Satan approaching Jesus, now the human being, um, the son who has been born as a human being, and tempts him and brings him to the top of the hill, shows him the four corners of the earth, which is where why some fundamentalists believe that the earth is flat and square, um, because there's a mention of the four corners of the earth, and tempts him. Um, in order to try to get him to sin. And Paradise Regained tells the story of Satan's temptation of Jesus, the Son of God, under the name, under his earthly name of Jesus. So yeah, that idea of being on top of a hill and seeing things, that gets picked up very explicitly in Paradise Regained. Satan shows Jesus, the entire world, the four corners of the world, um, and that's based on the temptation in the wilderness. That's based on the Gospels. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so God also has a little explanation of how he can see the future and yet there can be freedom, and that explanation he gives us in book three is... Um, where after calling us ingrates, um, or calling Adam and Eve ingrates, while they themselves are simply um, loving God, full of love and joy, reaping fruits of immortal joy, reaping immortal fruits of joy and love, um, God then says how he created all rational beings. And by rational beings, it's going to turn out, uh, Milton will be explicit about this later, Um, that rational beings are basically from humans up to God. There's um, a great chain of being, that's the standard phrase. Um, It's the phrase that, or it's the idea that the archangel Raphael explains to Adam. And what Raphael says is there's gradation from the brutest of matter all the way up to the most spiritual of spiritual beings, and that humans can rise up that chain if they're obedient from being human beings, rational creatures, eventually to becoming angelic creatures and participating or sharing in the experience of heaven. With angels. So God says that He created all rational beings with freedom, that it is the characteristic of being rational that you are created free. Um, This is a heresy for Milton. Um, Milton is writing at a time where Calvinism, or version of Calvinism, is settled doctrine in Protestant England, and Calvinism denies that there's free will. Um, Milton, who's heretical in several ways in Paradise Lost, he's a little bit careful not to make it too obvious Um, But he also wrote a book at the same time, or just before he wrote Paradise Lost, called On Christian Doctrine. He wrote it in Latin, which was not published until 150 years after his death, because some of the things he said in it were so heretical. Blake and Shelley hadn't read On Christian Doctrine. Um, when they decided that Satan was the hero of Paradise Lost. Had they read it, they might have been confirmed in their decisions. Um, So Milton is daring, although in Paradise Lost, which is published in his lifetime, um, he is a little bit careful not to say things that could get him burned at the stake. On Christian doctrine, could have gotten him burned at the stake. Um, So one of his heresies is a belief in freedom in human freedom, in angelic freedom. Um, Another possible heresy, this is going back to the euthyphro um, uh, dilemma or, um, or problem that we talked about on Monday, which is, does goodness precede God or does God get to decide what is good? Since I think we've all agreed, Milton accepts that conceptually good and God are separate things. That is, that you can conceive of what's good even if you have never heard of God. You can nevertheless see that certain things are good and other things are not good. Um, What that means, interestingly enough, is there is one creature in the universe who might not have free will, and that's God himself. Because God will always, if you accept that idea that goodness if you accept the following ideas, that goodness is conceptually separate from God and also that God is always good, what that would mean is God always has to do what is good and therefore has no free will, that goodness determines God's actions. So it's not that God determines goodness, it's that goodness determines what God will do. The other possibility, however, which Milton is certainly exploring is that God unfortunately does have free will and does not do what's good. And at any rate, God tells you how to solve the problem or how he solves the problem that the fallen angels are wandering in mazes trying to understand, which is how there can be both fixed fate and free will, both free will and foreknowledge absolute. So God says, this is book three now, Line 95, so will fall, that is, um, Adam and Eve will fall, whose fault, whose but his own ingrate, he had of me all he could have. I made him just and right, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. So humans were made with enough power not to fall, But with enough freedom that we could fall. Such I created all the ethereal powers and spirits, both them who stood and them who failed. That is, the angels were also created sufficient to have stood, yet free to fall. Some stood, some failed. Those who failed are the rebel angels. Freely they stood who stood and fell who fell. Not free, so here is God explaining why free will is necessary. Not free, what proof could they have given sincere of true allegiance? So if they weren't free, how could they show true allegiance to me if they had no choice? What proof could they have given sincere of true, of, of true allegiance, of constant faith or love, where only what they needs must do appeared, not what they would? So if they didn't have free will, there was no proof of allegiance or love or faith. What praise could they receive? What pleasure I from such obedience paid? When will and reason, reason also is choice, useless in vain, of freedom both despoiled, made passive both, had served necessity, not me. So the pleasure God takes is in the love of his creatures, and in the obedience, that love is shown by obedience. Who does that remind you of in a play by Shakespeare that we recently read? Yeah, who? The (laughs) fool? No. (laughs) That's that's a fantastic answer. But who is it who is demanding love and obedience? Oh, Lear. Yes. (laughs) From those to whom he is the father. Yeah, King Lear. Um... So in the same way that Lear is demanding free choice of obedience and love from his daughters and explicitly from Cordelia, but of course punishes her when she doesn't give it. Um, So there's an interesting question about, so how free is it if when you don't do it, you get banished or sent to hell Um, Well, but it's still free, is what God is saying. It's still free, is what Lear might have said. Um, And then God has that strange parentheses, reason is also choice. And what he's saying there is, if you love God because you have used your rational soul and mind to see that you should love him, then reason is is itself a choice that you make as well as the mode by which you do the choosing. That seems to be something like what that parentheses means. Um, If without freedom, then obedience and love, will and reason would be useless and vain. And rational creatures would not have freedom, they would be despoiled, of freedom and they would have been made passive and would have served not God but necessity. They would have served necessity not me. They therefore, he insists, as to right belonged, that is as was correct, they therefore as to right belonged, so were created. They were created free. Nor can justly accuse their maker or their making or their fate. So if Adam and Eve try to say, um, how could you do this to us, to God? You made us frail, innocent, but frail. And because of our frailty, we couldn't stand up to Satan. Um, if we were going to be faithful to you, you would have known it. But when you created us, you knew we wouldn't be faithful to you. Adam will famously, later famously for a reason I'll tell you in a second, um, ask God whether he wanted to be born. O maker, didst thy solicit thee out of my clay to mold me or to promote me man? Um, Adam says, I never asked to be born after the fall, after he um, now has to face death. How could you have done this to me when you knew I was going to fall? The reason that um, those lines have become so famous is they are the epigraph. Does anyone know to what novel? Did I solicit the out of darkness to promote me, out of my clay to mold me man? Familiar to anyone? It's the epigraph to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And what she is doing... Um, is she is having the monster, who is not named Frankenstein. Frankenstein is the name of his creator. She is having the monster um, put in the position of Adam. The monster, who never wanted to be created, is nevertheless created by Victor Frankenstein. And the monster... um, How many people have read Frankenstein? Frankenstein? Um, I saw on the Million Syllabus uh, Project, which some of you may know, um, that it's one of the ten most assigned readings in the United States. Period. Not in English. Period. Um, So in Frankenstein, you will remember that Frankenstein learns to read because he happens upon a copy of what book? Uh, You don't remember. This book! Not this edition, but this book! he happens upon a copy of Paradise Lost um, and that's one of the ways that he learns to read he teaches himself to read out of Paradise Lost um, which is part of what makes him better than us Uh, not out of the Bernstein Bears but out of Paradise Lost Um, and at one point he says to his creator um, I should have been thy Adam but I was thy Satan Um, So he understands his relation to Victor Frankenstein out of the dynamics in Paradise Lost. But God here is trying to forestall that objection, which he foresees Adam and Eve will make because he foresees everything. And he says, I made them free. They, therefore, as to right belonged. I followed what was right. Because what is right is independent of me, but I did what was right. They therefore, as to right belonged, so were created. Nor can justly, there's that word again from justify the ways of God to men. Nor can justly accuse their maker or their making or their fate, so they can't accuse me. They can't accuse the fact that I made them. They can't accuse the fate that would come to them, that I already know it is their fate to um, eat the, the apple. As if, and that's a huge as if, as if predestination overruled their will. So predestination is the Calvinist idea that everything is already set. And he's not denying that where they're destined to go is already known, but he's saying it didn't overrule their will, as if predestination overruled their will, disposed, as if their will were disposed by absolute decree or high foreknowledge, as if what they did was already disposed by me. That is, as though I'd set it up so that it would go, that way. Now hang on to that word disposed because Milton uses it a lot in his work and it actually has a technical meaning. And what that technical meaning is not in theology but in epic writing is disposition is the order of events in a story. You tell the story and you order the events in a certain way. Milton uses the phrase the disposition of the fable in his introduction to his um, one classical Greek-style drama, Samson Agonistes. He talks about the disposition of the fable, and he is there translating Aristotle's Poetics, which you've read. And In talking about the disposition of the fable, he is bringing up a really interesting idea that really matters to Paradise Lost, and it's an idea in narrative theory. So hang on to this, because this is something you should know about narrative theory, not only about Paradise Lost. A standard distinction to make in narrative theory is a distinction that is tends to be most often, although there are many, many different ways of putting it, but tends to be most often a distinction um, that is alluded to in Russian words, but they're very similar to English words, a uh, distinction between sujet, well, sujet is the Russian word, and fabula or fable. And what that distinction is in English is that fabula is the series of events, whether fortunate or unfortunate, in the order in which they occur, which the fictional or non-fictional narrative is telling you um, have occurred. So, fabula is what happened in the world, whether the real world or the fictional world. Fabula is what happened in the world in chronological order. So, fabula is um, when you would lay out the events according to a timeline. Sujet is how the story is told, which usually, in fact, almost always, almost inevitably, requires something other than telling the story in the exact order in which the events of the story happened. It's easiest to see this in a first-person narrative, but you can see it in any third-person narrative as well. In a first-person narrative, if a person um, says, um, I went into the room and um, my wife said to me, Mary, there you are, then what we can do if we're being very strict about the timeline is to say there was a woman who was born And that woman was probably named Mary after she was born. And then that woman got married. And um, the person she married was in a room. And then that person entered the room. And then her wife said to her, Mary, there you are. So just that very, very simple opening, which seems to describe one thing, we, in figuring out the backstory, have to go back in time. So... The events as events, as pure things that happen in the universe, occur in one order, and the telling of those events occur in a different order. Um, Sometimes the difference in ordering can be really, really interesting... But this, this is always the case in any fictional or non-fictional narrative, it is always the case. Before he was president, Nixon, lo- Nixon lost an election, I was going to say Lincoln, but Nixon lost um, the election um, of 1960 to John F. Kennedy, despite the fact that he'd been Eisenhower's vice president since 1952. So we've gone from 68 to 60, to 52, in a very simple sentence. We've done it backwards in time. Um, and we've done it because we've located someone, but the, the person we've located had a history. And now we're getting some of that history. They didn't simply come into being, or fall to earth, to allude to David Bowie, um, fully formed, or fall to hell fully formed. There was a history. So When this gets interesting is when we, readers, start being interested in the story, not only the story being told, but in trying to figure out why the storyteller is telling the story in the order that she's telling it in. Those of you who know The Wife of Bath, prologue in the Canterbury Tales, um, which if this were if we had one more week we would have done, we will know that every time she starts telling her story she says, oh but I forgot to tell you about this. And she's always going back to tell you stuff that she didn't mention or that she promised to mention but then she skipped over and now she has to go back and talk about that. Um, and the point is that if you read, and Chaucer is great at this, if you read Um, the wife of Bath trying to tell the story of her own life, what's really interesting is the story of how she tries to tell the story. The story she tells, the fabula, is interesting too, that she got married five times, um, and the order of the people she married. But more interesting is how she gravitates to certain parts of her story first and returns to them and how she forgets other parts. So the telling of the story is a story in itself. How the story is told is itself indicative of how the storyteller is him or herself a kind of character in a meta story. The meta story where the storyteller is telling a story. So it's kind of like you get a never-ending story or something. I'm not sure what to call it. Um... But you do get a never-ending story of the events that happened, but also of the storyteller's decisions and why he or she is making those decisions as to which events to focus on, what order to tell those events in, and so forth. Um, an obvious example of this is the movie The Usual Suspects. Um, but again, The Usual Suspects, in a way, is telling you something that all stories do. So here we have God who is saying that the story is that Adam and Eve fall. We know that now. He's giving a little narrative and the little narrative is they're ingrates, they fall. However, that hasn't happened yet. And instead, what's happening is at this point, they're not ingrates and they haven't fallen. But what God says is, He knows how the story will unfold. They themselves, as if predestination overruled their will, disposed by absolute decree, that is, as if I were the person who put the events in this way and didn't allow them to unfold in any other way. And what He's saying is, no, I didn't dispose these events that way. They weren't disposed by absolute decree of high foreknowledge. They themselves decreed their own revolt. They were the ones who did it. So they made the fabula, the series of events occur as they did. All I did was tell you those events in a different order. If I foreknew they themselves decreed their own revolt, not I, if I foreknew. Foreknowledge had no influence on their fault, which had no less proved certain, unforeknown. So, yeah, I knew what they would do, but that didn't influence what they did. They would have done it any way, foreknown or not. My knowledge of what they will do is no different from our knowledge, our non future seeing knowledge of what people did do. That is, if you get angry at someone because they um, drank your milkshake, they drank it up. You guys don't go to see enough movies, that's what I think. What am I referring to, Fred? Do Yes. That <laughs> yeah, uh, 200 years ago they were better, but yeah, <laughs> I drank your milkshake. Um, so if I'm angry at you because you drank my milkshake, you're not going to be able to say, but look, that's unchangeable, and therefore it wasn't my free will, because it is now an eternal fact of the universe that I drank your milkshake, Um Maybe you'll try to say that, but I'm not going to accept it. So what God is essentially saying is, look, the fact that I can remember the future, that the future for me is like the past for you, stuff that I know but didn't cause to happen, just as you didn't cause the past to happen just because you know it, just flip that. I didn't cause the future to happen just because I know it. So I could have foreknowledge, but what I have foreknowledge of is what you will freely do. I know it, but I didn't cause it. It was your own free action that, and here we should go to the future perfect tense, it was your own free action that will have caused it. So future perfect is the past tense from the point of view of the future. It's when you jump into the future so that something that is... The future now is the past from the perspective that you're looking at. You will have handed in your paper by February 24th. So there I'm using the future perfect tense. That is what God is essentially saying. And notice the future perfect tense is also about the disposition of events. Something in the future now will be in the past later and I can now talk about the future in which this other future event will have become a past event. So that's sujet. that's telling the story in a certain way, rather than fabula, which is simply the timeline of how things happen. So one reason that I bring this up, there are several, but one reason that I bring this up is that Paradise Lost is very much about its narrator struggling with the material that he is giving us. That is, it's very much a story about how the storyteller is struggling to tell us a story in which he doesn't actually agree with who the official heroes and villains are. That's why the narrator has those invocations to the muse, which, if you think about it, are tell me the story about this thing that happened that I already know. But in his invocations to the muse, what he's doing is asking for help in telling a story. And the story that we're reading or hearing is the answer to his prayer for help, but it's not something he can do on his own. And so he doesn't know where it's going to go. And the really crucial thing is that Milton actually is demonstrating, and will say so several times, in addition to the enormous epic authority that he has, he's also demonstrating the extent to which he doesn't know what's going to happen. In the telling, he knows the events. He knows the fabula. He knows this happened, then that happened, then something else happened. But he doesn't know how he is going to say these things. And he thinks about whether he agrees, you could almost say, with what the muse is telling him about what happened. So if you recall that amazing speech where he beholds, where he breaks down in tears, where he appears no less than archangel ruined, he there being Satan, not Milton, And if you recall, although I didn't really pay a lot of attention to this at the time in this class, but if you recall the way it goes, well, I'll just um, read it to you again because it is so amazing. Um, He above the rest, this is, um, if you want to go to it, book one, line 588, he above the rest in shape and gesture proudly eminent stood like a tower tower. His form had yet not lost all her original brightness, nor appeared less than archangel ruined, and the excess of glory obscured, as when the sun new as when the sun um, new risen looks through the horizontal misty air, shorn of his beams, or from behind the moon in dim eclipse, disastrous twilight sheds on half the nations, and with fear of changes change perplexes monarchs, darkened so, so he's darkened, yet shone above them all the archangel. So this passage has a lot of words that grammatically are called adversatives. and what an adversative is, is when you change direction in speech or writing. I know I'm late but I have an excuse. I have a really good excuse. Um, I was so entranced by Paradise Lost that I just kept reading and reading and reading. Um, I um, got you this, yet I know it's not really up your alley, but I think you'll like it. However, if you don't, it's got a gift certificate and you can return it. Still, don't tell me if you do that because it'll hurt my feelings, even though I know that it shouldn't. So what, you, what a sentence like that does is it shifts direction over and over and over again. And each time there's a shift in direction, it's through an adversative. Still, however, but, yet, all those words are called adversatives. And what they mean is the thing that I've just said, I'm now going to say something that isn't um, the same. This passage is full of those, and what you can feel in those adversatives is that there's an official thing that Milton is supposed to say, which is, evil Satan was ruined and he looked at his troops and he was a jerk. And then he can't. And he's struggling with himself. And that's part of what makes this passage so sublime. So, his form had yet not lost all her original brightness, darkened so, yet shone above them all the archangel. So that's the yet shown. He's darkened. He deserves to be. He's Satan. Yet, shone above them all the archangel. But, no, now I'm going to go more official on you. But his face deep scars of thunder had entrenched. And care sat on his faded cheeks. Good, he deserves it. But, I got to give the devil his due. Under brows of dauntless courage. And considerate pride waiting Revenge, colon, or you may have some other um, uh, punctuation mark, but punctuation mark where he tries again to say, cruel, cruel his eye. So now he's going to go back to, Satan is cruel, we don't like him. And then he can't, but cast signs of remorse um, and passion to behold the fellows of his crime. The followers, rather, another adversative. But here, what's happening is the adversatives are going on in Satan's mind now. Milton has become so entranced by Satan, or the narrator of Paradise Lost has become so entranced by Satan that it's now Satan's adversatives that he's following. The fellows of... This is the free indirect discourse we talked about. The fellows of his crime, the followers, rather, Satan concedes that. It was my fault. Far other ones be held in bliss. So it used to be different, another adversative, but this is now in Satan's mind. And the narrator has become so sympathetic, despite himself to Satan, that he is seeing how Satan himself is tortured for what he has done. condemned forever now. To have their lot in pain, millions of spirits, for his fault, immersed of heaven. So God wouldn't say that. God would say millions of spirits, for their fault, immersed of heaven. And from eternal splendors flung, God would say for their revolt. But that's not what Satan or the narrator are saying. They're saying for his revolt, yet final adversative, yet faithful how they stood. So they've lost heaven, yet they're faithful. All of this now is no longer official versus unofficial doctrine. This is all from the point of view, sympathetic point of view, for the rebel angels. Now one thing that we know, here um, we're going to hop around a little bit. One thing that we know about Paradise Lost, I mentioned this earlier to you, we know a lot about Paradise Lost. Um, I do. A lot of people who think they do don't. They write books that are wrong. Um, But one thing that um, everyone who works on Milton knows about Paradise Lost is that it started out as a drama, um, that Milton wanted to write it as a kind of Shakespearean play. When Milton was a little boy, Shakespeare was still alive, and Milton's father used to take him to see the new Shakespeare plays at the Globe Theater. He walked. He lived um, a walking distance away from the Globe. And he actually talks about that in some of his poems. He liked seeing Shakespeare's plays. He liked seeing Ben Johnson's plays. Um, so he never met Shakespeare, presumably because Shakespeare... Um, died when Milton was eight, but he loved Shakespeare and he wrote, his. as I mentioned before, he wrote a poem for Shakespeare's um, second folio, the second edition of Shakespeare's work. So he began Paradise Lost as a drama, and we know what the first speech was going to be of this drama. What was going to happen is that Satan was going to come on stage and speak the speech of a villain, and the villain that he was going to sound like was going to be very much like Edmund in King Lear. Um, also, like Richard III, if you know the play Richard III, which begins with the villain coming on stage, opening of Richard III, his villain comes on stage and says, anyone know? Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York, um, Richard is not on the side of the son of York, who is his brother? Um, Richard is looking forward to being a villain, and he addresses us in the audience and says, "Admire what a great villain I am going to be. Um, I am Doctor Evil, and i 'm going to get one million um, pounds not quite so um, However, Richard the Third begins in a very powerful way with a villain coming on stage. Um, King Lear doesn't begin that way, but Act 1, Scene 2 of King Lear begins that way. When Edmund comes on stage, anyone remember his first line? Thou nature art my goddess, he says, unto thee my services are due. And what he says is, I don't care about convention or society or... um, or um, legitimacy, fine word, legitimate, he says. I don't care about any of that. I transcend that. The only thing, I I don't care about God or religion or astrology. I simply give myself over to truth and nature. So to say thou nature art my goddess is not to say, oh nature, you're so amazing. I prostrate myself before you. Um, what it means is I am powerful like a force of nature. That's all that I believe in. So this idea of the evil but energetic character starting off the play was how Milton was going to start Paradise Lost. He was going to start it with book four, line 33. So Satan looks at the sun and in the original version of Paradise Lost um, Satan was going to come onto the stage and say, as his first lines, he was going to soliloquize, O thou that with surpassing glory crowned, looks from thy sole dominion like the god of this new world, at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads. So he's, he's now addressing the sun itself. Now is the winter of his discontent made glorious summer by the Son of God. O thou that with surpassing glory crowned looks from thy sole dominion like the God of this new world, at whose sight all the stars hide their diminished heads, to thee I call, but with no friendly voice. Hang on to that word voice, but with no friendly voice. And add thy name, O Son, that is add thy name, O Son, To tell thee how I hate thy beams that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell. How glorious once above thy sphere. So Satan, the evil, was going to come on stage and curse the sun. And curse the sun with this extraordinarily sublime language. I hate the sun. If you think of Ahab hating the white whale from hell's heart, I stab at you. Um he hates the white whale, and Melville is thinking of Satan in the same way that Satan hates the sun. Now, if you go back just a touch to the what I think is the invocation to book four, most people don't call this an invocation, and the reason is that it's a failed invocation. The invocation to book four, just line one, is the narrator suddenly desperately calling for something that he doesn't have. Oh, for that warning voice which he who saw the apocalypse, that is St. John the Divine who wrote the apocalypse, wrote the book of Revelation. Oh, for that warning voice which he who saw the apocalypse heard cry in heaven aloud, then when the dragon put to second rout came furious down to be revenged on men. Woe to the inhabitants on earth that now... While time was, our first parents had been warned the coming of their secret foe and escaped, happily so escaped that has escaped his mortal snare. So he's asking for a voice. The invocation is the calling in of the muse, the calling down, but it's a voice for calling. The vogue in invocation is the voc of vocal. It is to cry or to clamor or to call with your voice. So he says, if only I had a voice like the voice that St. John heard in heaven, woe to the inhabitants of earth, maybe I could have warned Adam and Eve what they didn't get warned of. Now, a whole lot of the rest of Paradise Lost, or the middle part of Paradise Lost, is Adam and Eve being warned to watch out for Satan. But what Milton seems to be saying here is that warning was not enough. If only I had a voice, but I don't. So he invokes the muse for a voice that could echo backwards up the centuries to the creation of Adam and Eve. But he doesn't get that voice. If only I had a voice to warn them, unlike the voice of the angel whom God sends down to warn them. So that's striking. But then again, notice that he wants that voice, oh, for that warning voice, and compare that to Satan's voice in cursing the sun. Satan, the narrative Paradise Lost, they have a voice which seems to be far greater than the voice of the loyal angels or even the voice of God. Now... The other thing to notice about the opening of book four and the opening of the whole thing is that idea, Satan will curse the sun, that doesn't come till book four, although it's the first thing that Milton thinks to write. So we have a little story about the writing of the story. Milton probably wrote those lines before he went blind. Now, in the invocation of book three, if Satan hates the sun, in the invocation of book three, Milton praises light itself hail holy light offspring of heaven firstborn and he talks about the celestial light that is gone forever from him and it's just worth going through if we have the minute which we do to do to do it hail holy light opening of book 3 offspring of heaven firstborn or of the eternal co-eternal beam. That is, maybe you are an effluence from God, but you are as eternal as he is. May I express the unblamed? May I call upon light? May I describe it? Since God is light, and never but in unapproached light dwelt from eternity, dwelt then in thee. Bright effluence. Light is bright. It is what flows out. It's a bright outflow of bright essence, the essence of God, in-create. Light was never created, it was always there. Kind of heretical, since the first line of the Bible, as God said, let there be light, and there was light. Milton is saying, no, light is uncreated, it was always there. Or here's that rather pure ethereal stream, whose fountain who shall tell, before the sun, before the heavens thou wert, And at the voice, there it is again, of God, as with a mantle didst invest the rising world of waters, dark and deep, one from the void and formless infinite. Thee I revisit now with bolder wing, escape the sticky and pool, the long detained in that obscure sojourn. So he's now saying, I got out of hell. I spent two books writing about hell. It was awful. But now I'm telling the story of writing this story, which is to get into the precincts of light. I was taught at line 19 by the heavenly muse to venture down the dark descent and up to reascend. Thee I revisit safe and feel thy sovereign vital lamp. But thou revisits not these eyes that roll in vain to find thy piercing ray and find no dawn. So thick a drops of quench quenched their orbs or dim suffusion veiled. So he's returned to the precincts of light, but he can't see that light. He goes on to describe his memory of light. And then he says, well, I want, therefore, in exchange for my loss of being able to see sunrise and clouds and fields and streams... And the human face divine, I want an inner light so that I can see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. Last thing to say today then is that Satan in book one says the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Satan in book four, maybe we'll talk about this either in section tomorrow or next week, Satan in Book 4 finds that the flip side of that is that he brings hell with him. I myself am hell. Which way I fly is hell. He can't escape hell even when he's in the Garden of Eden because the mind does make a hell of heaven. Milton, at the beginning of Book 3, uses his mind to fight his blindness by going instead to the realms and regions of inner light. And part of what this poem is about is Milton imagining light in the midst of his own darkness. Okay, sections tomorrow.